Every year, hundreds of neurology graduates gather at testing sites across the country for 400 clinical questions of just pure fun. You remember your boards, right, David? I do, very vividly. This is Dr. David Coughlin, who was on our show last year discussing the pharmacologic management of Parkinson's disease. But anyway, back to the neurology board exam. It's a comprehensive test, and it covers far more than we ever planned to discuss on brainwaves. But for the most part, there is a large degree of overlap. I bring this up because I just took my boards in September, and this year there was only one question involving a patient with a movement disorders emergency. There aren't many emergencies in the subspecialty of movement disorders, but for those that exist, they can be quite severe for patients. Regardless of how infrequently it comes up on your exam, it's a high-yield topic, and it's one that you should know not just because it could be on your boards or your neurology research exam for all the neurologists out there. You should know it because you might come across a case like this in your practice. Welcome to the land of time Welcome back to the show, David. Very happy to be here. This is an episode of Teaching Through Clinical Cases, so let's start with our case. The patient in question is a 49-year-old nurse whose chief complaint in the ED was fever and nausea. In the ED, she was diagnosed with a UTI, and given her prior history of vancomycin-resistant enterococcal UTIs, she was started on linazolid. Among her other pertinent past medical history, she also carried a diagnosis of major depression, which was reasonably well-controlled on fluoxetine. She also had diet-controlled hypertension, tension headaches, and tobacco use. Lately, for her recent fever, she was taking some ibuprofen, and for some back pain she had, she was taking a few tablets of tramadol which she'd been given before for her headaches. In the ED, as she's being examined by the on-call emergency physician, neurologically she appears normal. She's alert, she's oriented, she's following commands, and on general exam, she appears to have pyelonephritis. There's a positive urinalysis, and she has some costovertebral angle tenderness. We'll skip over much of this part. So, linazolid seems like a good antibiotic choice for her. Six hours later, in the observation unit, her fever worsens. She becomes more anxious, she's now more diaphoretic, she's tremulous, she's shivering, and she has new diarrhea. Initially, this was attributed to early septic shock, so she's given more IV fluids. Her heart rate is now in the 120s. But she gets more anxious, her heart rate and temperature continue to climb, they don't respond to the fluid challenge or to the acetaminophen, which she receives later, and now she's disoriented. Within 12 hours of her ED arrival, she's now febrile to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and she's increasingly agitated. The ED physician also notes that the pupils are dilated to 5 millimeters, and they're barely reactive. So they ask you, as the neurology consultant, to come see this patient for delirium and possible intoxication. Now, David, after all this history, you're finally at the scene. You observe the patient in bed. She's clearly diaphoretic. She's physically restrained because she's combative, and she refuses to lay still. All of her extremities seem to be moving equally, but she's not attending to your voice or moving to commands, and when you get closer to her, you do notice that the pupils are dilated and they're minimally reactive. She's still tachycardic and she's febrile to touch, but she's not hypotensive, and in fact she seems to be intermittently hypertensive to systolic pressures of 160 to 200. On your brief neurologic exam, you notice that she is rigid throughout, but perhaps more so in her arms than her legs. The ED physician now wants to sedate the patient with haloperidol, but before they do this, you're going to want to get more of a neurologic exam. So at this point, what do you think it could be that explains the myriad of her symptoms, and what physical exam techniques can you use to differentiate these diagnoses? 
Sure. So thank you very much for that extremely complete history, Jim. Um, I fear that most often, though, uh, what most consultants are going to hear over the phone is going to be far less descriptive and complete than what we just got. And most of the time, it's going to be up to us as neurologists to help piece some of these things together. Um, so where I went to med school, we were taught to try to formulate what they called elevator thoughts, basically a set of a differential um, that you could work through. These are things that should be going through your mind when you're basically walking down the hall towards the elevator to go see your consult. And then based on sort of a very basic framework that you have constructed to yourself, you would know basically what questions would have very pertinent answers to help you guide through this and maybe what aspects of the physical exam would help you lead to a uh, correct diagnosis. Uh, so for this particular patient, you're called to investigate a case of fever and altered mental status. So a reasonable differential starting point would be divide uh, these categories up into infective and non-infective causes. And of course, in the infective category, you have meningitis or encephalitis. You could also consider indirect causes of altered sensorium in an infected patient, such as subclinical seizures, sepsis that's associated with TDP, of which altered mental status is a feature, or just plain old delirium in the critically ill. As an exercise to avoid premature closure, though, you should go through mentally at least the list of non-infective causes of fever and altered mental status. So toxidromes, uh, like amphetamines, cocaine ingestion, ecstasy and anticholinergics, or withdrawal syndromes, like from alcohol and benzos can have these features. Metabolic causes might include thyrotoxicosis, but also important not to forget things like subarachnoid hemorrhage and interventricular hemorrhage. Uh, or brainstem or hypothalamic lesions, which can impair thermoregulatory mechanisms as well. Even psychiatric syndromes like malignant catatonia can have fever that's often associated with it. So these elevator thoughts are meant to be overly inclusive, um, and the time course of this case is particularly noteworthy given that the patient was allegedly cogitating normally when she first came to the ED. So not only has this process been acute, but it makes a lot of things on that last uh, set of lists uh, seem less likely. So your history is going to want to confirm that that time period is in fact correct, take careful medical history, travel history, social, and make sure that you pay particular attention to the medications that were administered as part of her hospital course so far. But as with most things in neurology, the exam is going to help you a great deal, even with uh, in an uncooperative patient. To help differentiate the above, you're going to want to pay close attention, of course, to the cranial nerve exam and the strength exam, even if it's passive or observational in this case. Uh, you want to look for deficits that would be indicative of a brainstem process. You're going to want to pay attention to nuchal rigidity, and if possible, a fundoscopic exam would be helpful to look for papilledema as well. Uh, one particular key in this case, though, is the fact that the patient has limb rigidity, which considerably changes the direction that one might be heading in. So the differential of fever, rigidity, and altered mental status would include other syndromes like neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome, which would have fallen under our previous heading of the toxidromes anyway. For completeness sake, there are autoimmune causes, such as PERM, that are on this differential. But again, this is a pretty quick turnaround since it happened in the ED. So serotonin syndrome uh, and NMS would be the more likely. So you perform as much of a neurologic exam as you can and assessing for things like nuchal rigidity and meningismus in the patient, you don't appreciate any, but she does seem to be very stiff to that movement. There doesn't seem to be any elicitable pain with that. So it's as rigid as the rest of her body parts. 
And your suspicion that this is a toxic syndrome, like neuroleptic malignant syndrome or serotonin syndrome, your suspicion for that is raised. So is there any other physical exam element that could be instrumental in making a diagnosis? I like that you use the word instrumental, actually. Um, so it is the one feature that we didn't really talk too much about, and that's her reflexes. So the reflex hammer is hugely helpful in this. So there's a lot of clinical overlap in patients who have NMS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, versus serotonin. But there are a few key features on a clinical exam that can help you tell them apart. So hyperreflexia and clonus is much more commonly seen in serotonin syndrome than NMS. Uh, the same is true in myoclonus, which can be helpful in differentiating the two based on just exam alone. Again, though, her history is helpful. Knowing that she takes fluoxetine at home, she's recently taken at least a handful of tramadol, which itself is somewhat serotonergic, and she was also given linazolid to boot. So linazolid is a weak monoamine oxidase inhibitor that helps increase circulating serotonin through that mechanism. Uh, so her history is very consistent with serotonin syndrome at this point, which tends to develop pretty quickly over hours versus something like NMS, which is usually thought to have a slower onset over the course of hours or at least several days anyway. Regarding serotonin syndrome, there have been multiple diagnostic criteria over the years. The general trend, though, has been a more inclusiveness to actually aid in recognizing milder cases. And in fact, there's a really wide spectrum of clinical presentations that can include other features like tremor, ataxia, akathisia, even ocular clonus. So Hunter's 2003 criteria is really the most recent set and it only requires the coincident addition or increase of a serotonergic medicine and one of the following symptom complexes, either spontaneous clonus, inducible clonus plus agitation or diaphoresis, tremor and hyperreflexia, or hypertonia, fever, and clonus. And that's all you need. And to distinguish that from NMS, what main features might you rely on? You can rely on the physical exam to a certain extent. Um, some laboratory investigations can be helpful. In NMS, you very, very frequently get increased CPKs. In fact, sometimes quite high. You also usually get increased liver enzymes, which is usually commensurate with the CPK, actually, and a leukocytosis as well. In particularly bad cases, you'll get a lactic acidosis as well. So this is where it becomes a little bit tricky. So in NMS, those types of features are present in over 90% of the cases. In serotonin syndrome, they can be present, but it's usually at a much lower rate anyway. So truthfully, the absence of some of them would be more consistent with serotonin syndrome than not. But in particularly severe cases, of which this is, sounds like it's going to be, it might not help you tell them apart so much, actually. So let's say for this case, the patient's reflexes actually turned out to be brisk, and she ended up having some slight elevations in her liver enzymes and a slight leukocytosis. While the rest of her laboratory studies are pending, what kind of steps do you want to make in this kind of early stage to her management? As far as workup and management, I might not close the case on workup quite yet. You know, we're going to be waiting on some toxicology results for sure. I still think that you would want to get some form of neuroimaging, head CT at the very least, and probably CSF sampling as well, given this pretty dramatic presentation. Just, of course, discontinuing all offending serotonergic agents has to happen as soon as possible. A lot of the early management is supportive. You know, for particularly mild cases, sometimes you can get away, it sounds like, with IV fluid resuscitation and sometimes a little bit of Benadryl and benzos as well. 
In more severe cases, like this one, where she's got this really bad altered sensorium, uh, autonomic instability at this point, fever, that sounds really bad. She's going to need to go to the ICU for cardiac and respiratory monitoring. For most cases like this, patients will end up being intubated and sedated and paralyzed, mostly to help them really reduce the muscle hyperexcitation, and that'll help dispel the hyperthermia and make sure that she doesn't get her CK elevated to the point where she goes into renal failure. A couple of things that you're going to want to do as well from a medical management, um, propranolol can be helpful for autonomic instability, similar to how it can be helpful for different aspects of autonomic storming. However, the textbook and the right slash board's answer that you'll probably see is ciproheptadine, which is a serotonin antagonist. So in this emergent situation, you're going to want to get that medication into her pretty quickly. One other thing I want to comment about management, you know, in this case, especially because it's acute and you know what med she's got, and you're pretty sure that it's serotonin syndrome. In some cases, it's not entirely clear whether it's serotonin syndrome or NMS, and especially in a psychiatric patient who's taking a lot of different medications, it can be a little bit unclear. Even cases that have had both at the same time have been described in the literature. Now, we haven't talked a lot about NMS, and that's on purpose, uh, but generally it tends to happen because of an over-inhibition of dopamine receptors. So antiserotonergic agents like ciproheptadine won't do anything for NMS. And in fact, the treatment for NMS is usually recommended to have some type of dopamine agonist on board. And believe it or not, that can actually make serotonin syndrome worse because most of those dopamine agonists are not entirely selective for the dopamine receptor. So you want to be as sure as possible, at least when you're starting dopamine agonist therapy in the setting of suspected NMS anyway. So in my very limited experience, I've seen that providers are more hesitant to give something like ciproheptadine in the case of serotonin syndrome, even if it's very severe, because the rule is that these patients tend to recover more quickly as long as the offending agent is discontinued and as long as whatever triggered the event is avoided. Has that been your experience, or would you advocate for earlier and more aggressive use of ciproheptadine in cases not necessarily this severe, but maybe less severe? Well... I don't think in every case it's really necessary to give ciproheptadine. And again, serotonin syndrome is definitely a continuum of which there are many, many milder forms which are generally probably under-recognized. And those people do just fine either with just discontinuation on the outpatient basis or like I was saying before, a little bit of Benadryl and benzos. But for somebody who's really ill, I don't see like a huge downside to using this medication, honestly. You know, it's not something that people use a ton of, for sure. You can, you know, prescribe this for a variety of different conditions, even as, you know, things like migraine headaches, even. So oral administration of this particularly short-acting medication, honestly, seems to have a pretty limited downside, especially in somebody who's critically ill. Um, so I would say, don't be afraid of it. Use it. And frankly, some people need kind of a lot of it, it looks like, up front to kind of quell... Uh, the initial insult, and then sometimes repeated dosing over the next, you know, several hours, even day or so, until they kind of write out the entire syndrome at that point. Is there good evidence that supports the use of ciproheptadine in serotonin syndrome, or do we just like it because pathophysiologically it makes sense to use it? Well, uh, the level of evidence behind ciproheptadine in serotonergic syndromes, it's... It's not great. Um, it's been used a lot in certain case reports and case series. There's never been, as far as I could find, any randomized trial that really supported its use over any other medication, really, versus placebo. 
but on the basis of those case series and case reports alone, people still, you know, use it as standard of care at this point. What is the typical course of a patient with serotonin syndrome and the expected prognosis? It's usually pretty acute onset and also pretty quick offset. And there's another thing that kind of helps differentiate it from NMS, which, you know, slowly gains steam over several days and also takes a much longer time to resolve. So the course of hours to a few days would be typical anyway. But again, this isn't a usually common uh, scenario, especially for patients who are this critically ill. People who have hyperthermia and that rigidity indicate a more severe type anyway, a more severe state of the disease anyway. And that is associated with greater mortality, especially if it's not managed swiftly and effectively. And uh, at least in two case series from 2002 and 2005, they cited nearly 100,000 combined cases that were reported to national poison control centers. Um, and at least in those years, they uh, found that death only occurred in 0.2%. So generally, mortality is very low. But prompt management and aggressive management makes those numbers that low. And so people need to recognize and treat early. Did those papers happen to mention what the patients died from? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of them were multi-organ failure. A lot of them were complications of renal failure afterwards, yeah. So getting back to our case and kind of rounding it off, the patient was in fact intubated and sedated. She was treated supportively with fluids, acetaminophen and ibuprofen. She received intravenous midazolam, was paralyzed for the intubation, and she did receive ciproheptadine for up to 36 hours. She continued to receive her antibiotic therapy for the pyelonephritis, which was the reason she initially presented, but the linazolib was changed back to vancomycin after the second dose. Later on, as she recovered, the patient and her sister eventually received counseling in the ICU about the prognosis, and as you suggested, it was pretty rapid recovery. She was extubated, and she was eventually discharged to a rehab where she recovered. And moving forward with her outpatient care, what kind of advice would you give to her for the long term? That's a good question. Um, so there's really very little literature to guide those decisions. I think we would all feel a lot more comfortable if her depression could be managed with some other non-SSRI or SNRI agents. If she requires an SSRI for psychiatric stability, she needs to definitely avoid taking tramadol and be very wary of starting new medications, even some of those that are available over the counter. Uh, she definitely needs to verify all new medications with a physician. take-home points that I would hope people would get from this episode is that you should keep serotonin syndrome in your differential, especially if somebody who has fevered altered mental status, especially if you're seeing a movement disorder that has hyperreflexivity that's present. The condition can take several forms, some of which are mild, probably under-recognized, but some of which can constitute very life-threatening emergencies that require very prompt and specific therapies. So, there are several drugs that have serotonergic effects that we tend to forget about. You know, tramadol is very extensively used, dextromethorphan and cough medicine, Flexeril, 
Of course, the tricyclic, antidepressants, valproic acid, and even the over-the-counter St. John's wort has a fair amount of serotonergic activity and has been implicated in the development of these syndromes. There's many, many more that we could talk about. The list kind of goes on and on, but that's one of the reasons why I have to be mindful, especially when we're taking a medication history. Well, I think those are some excellent teaching points to take away from the case. As always, thanks for joining me on this week's show, Dr. Coughlin. I look forward to having you back soon. Thank you again for having me. That wraps it up for Brainwaves this week. I'd like to thank Dr. David Coughlin for helping put together the content for this episode and for the associated blog this week on brainwaves.me. The music this week was courtesy of Heisen, Josh Woodward, Comacue, and Peter Rodinko. This episode was produced by me, Jim Siegler. Tune in next week for an in-depth discussion on the history, the ethics, and the true science underlying brain death. That's next Thursday on Brainwaves. Talk to you then. He could rule the USA. Yeah, welcome to